and welcome to Talking Property with CBRE, a podcast in which our team of experts share their commercial real estate insights and industry-leading perspectives. My name is Amanda Steele. I'm Executive Managing Director of Property Management for CBRE Pacific, and I'm your host for today's episode. In our last episode, we talked about the future of sustainability and how Australia, as a global leader in sustainability, can drive change in the future and why technology is one of the major driving forces behind this change. We also covered off why responsible investment is good for business and how the digitization of sustainability can drive the green recovery. In today's episode, we speak with Emma McMahon, National Sustainability Director here at CBRE, to discuss the impact COVID-19 has had on key environmental measures such as neighbours ratings, energy prices, and the climate change conversation and answer some questions from our listeners also. When COVID hit four months ago, there was that real pressure around how we would manage assets. And Emma, your team and and the broader team in CBRE were responsible for really working with our clients around what the impacts of reduced occupancy would look like in the sustainability space. So I guess now that we've got four months behind us, what impacts are we seeing more broadly around our broader managed portfolio in a sustainability perspective? Yeah, absolutely. It definitely posed quite a challenge, but also opportunity to really squeeze out as much energy out of those buildings and our portfolios that we manage as much as possible. When COVID kicked off, I guess, a number of months ago, Neighbours, which we applied to a number of buildings that we manage across Australia, released a number of new rulings on how to provide advice to assessors and to landlords and how the ratings would be conducted. And for our team of assessors, it included removing the requirement for an actual on-site visit. So allowing for virtual site visits to happen. Uh, Not ideal, but still allowing those site visits to occur and allowing landlords to renew their rating uh, as they wanted to on an annual basis. But it also put a moratorium on the use of data during what neighbours termed the COVID-affected period. So uh, a period between March and June, which was specifically impacted by uh, reduced occupancy during that time. That moratorium, though, has since been lifted, meaning that neighbours' ratings can be conducted in, I guess, a relatively similar way to what they had been before. Unless, of course, you've received written evidence or an agreement between tenant and landlord that there's been a change in the service positions due to reduced occupancy. So in terms of energy savings during COVID and over the last number of months, our original expectation, I think, was that there would be significant energy savings. And there absolutely have been in a number of cases. We've seen anything vary between a 10 and a 50 percent energy saving. But in reality, it has actually been very varied. Less people in a building doesn't always translate to less energy use necessarily. You know, we are tied to lease conditions that dictate the certain internal conditions that are expected to be maintained in a building. But it's absolutely an opportunity to for our facilities managers and our property teams to identify opportunities that they wouldn't have otherwise looked at to squeeze out more energy. What we are seeing, though, as well, interestingly, is that the energy that we're saving in the CBD buildings is now actually being transferred to our homes. There was a report actually issued in April that looked at the major lockdowns and when the closures began, that total electricity consumption was actually just 2.5% lower than the equivalent periods in 2019 and in 2018, which was really interesting. So, you know, while absolutely we're saving energy in the CBD locations and in commercial towers, we're still working, we're still using energy in other places and in our own homes. So there actually hasn't been overall a significant energy shift as I think we originally expected there to be. 
And Emma, is that because we're all baking sourdough or is it because <laughs> uh, our homes are less efficient? I think that's the answer, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that I think Davina and, and Ruben would agree with as well, is that there hasn't been as big a focus on residential in Australia as there has been in the commercial market, mm. for sure. But I think with people working at home, there's that bit more of a realisation about how much energy we do actually use when we are at home, how much waste that we are um, throwing out to landfill as well, because we're paying for it ourselves. We're not relying on our organisations to pay for that energy usage as much. I know I definitely got a bit of a shock when my bill came through last month. So yeah, our homes are a lot more energy inefficient than our commercial towers typically are. Yeah, fascinating. Um, I guess one of the benefits of COVID is that we have seen a drop in energy prices which has been fantastic. Do you think that that will remain? Yeah, good question. And that was definitely one of the uh, unforeseen benefits, I guess, of COVID on the empty buildings in CBD locations around the country was a drop in energy prices. Uh, Wholesale electricity and gas prices have experienced a massive drop since the pandemic began with buildings empty, social restrictions in place, but no shortage in supply. It's led to a drop in between 10 to 40 percent in some cases, depending on which state you're in and depending on the contract terms you had with your existing retailer. But interestingly, renewable energy is now cheaper than electricity from new build coal and new gas stations in Australia. And even wind energy, for example, 14 percent cheaper in a number of cases. So where we've explained those stats uh, to clients, they're certainly more open to looking at renewable energy options when they're renewing their contracts, where before for them, it didn't often commercially make a lot of sense. But now because we're seeing renewable energy as uh, cheaper in a number of cases than new coal and new gas, it's absolutely part of the conversation. Yeah, fascinating. And I guess, Emma, the energy conversation is one that we can continue with for a long time to come. And renewable energy will, I think, emerge from this crisis as as a real focus for a lot of our investors, most definitely. If we can remember before COVID, there was actually a period before COVID, and there was some devastating bushfires in Australia, which really shone a lens on the importance of climate risk. And I know that a lot of your clients were focusing on that climate risk. Have you seen that retract with COVID? Are you seeing that our clients and investors are moving away from that climate risk or is it still a focus in the Australian market? Yeah, it's definitely been mixed. And you're right, that conversation around bushfires feels like six years ago, not six (laughs) months with with the year that we've had. And I think in January and February, it took up, I would say, 90% of the conversation that I was having with clients. It definitely brought to the forefront the realisation that this is not something that we need to deal with in 2030. 2050. This is happening now and we're seeing and feeling the effects of it right now. In particular, in the buildings that we manage where we had to deal with, I guess, managing the indoor environment quality of the spaces that we occupy, where you know everyone was choking on smoke outside. We wanted to make sure that that indoor environment quality was still maintained um, so that people could work comfortably and safely in their office environments. But the property sector is a capital intensive industry with long life assets and significant supply chains. So it's absolutely vulnerable and at risk of losing premium tenants, increasing vacancy rates, loss of property value if climate risk isn't addressed. And and to Ruben's point, it's something that the investor conversation and investor table, it's not gone away. Investors absolutely do want to understand what that risk looks like, um, how it's materialised and how 
their clients are looking at ways to mitigate that risk. So now that I guess, you know, we're starting into this new normal, I think the climate risk conversation is absolutely emerging again, because again, it's not going to go away. And it is something that we do need to address and put some plans in place around. In terms of whether or not our clients are a bit more hesitant to look at what those risks might be, especially now, because it is a very cash poor environment. We have a lot of landlords very reluctant to spend a lot of capex on any project. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of a misconception, I think, that investing in or investigating climate risk on your property, on your portfolio, means that you have to spend money right now. That's not necessarily always the case. There's some really clever operational improvements that you can make to your um, operation of your HVAC system, um, emergency preparedness plans, if they're in place already, updating those. You know, we're actively using a lot of those right now with pandemic response, but how do they translate to an extreme flood or making sure that we do maintain business continuity in, in another extreme weather event? So there's a lot of misconception around what a climate risk assessment may mean for a landlord should they look at it right now. But it is that long-term plan and it's looking at the long-term goals as well. We actually did a um, an occupier survey at CBRE as well and a number of occupiers across the Australian market and asked a number of sustainability questions last year for the first time. The top three things that occupiers were really keen to see and were, were notifying or noticing as trends, I guess, in this space were around, you know, waste management, energy efficiency and, and eco cleaning practices. But climate risk actually did make it to the top 10 of that list as well, with one in three of our occupier clients wanting to understand what landlords are doing around climate risk. And while I was initially surprised to see that high number, I guess you look at what's happening in social media at the moment and around the time of bushfires, schools going on strike and you have um, social and public figures like Greta Thunberg taking social media by storm, talking about this topic. These are the people that we're going to be employing in our organisations in the near future as well. They're the people who are going to be leading our country. So it's absolutely something that the nation does care about and people want to see more policy and action around. So the real estate industry has a really interesting and really exciting opportunity, I guess, to lead the way in that space as well. Talking about climate risk, Emma, we've had some questions come through and I'll ask them to the panel. And one is relevant, um, particularly around climate risk and water. So, of course, the bushfires were as a result of significant drought and lack of water, Australia being a very dry continent, and yet water still isn't a focus for a lot of the strategies around sustainability. People gravitate to energy. The questions have come through around why that is and when it will change, when will we actually focus on our most precious resource and value it properly. Yeah, I think it's definitely an interesting one. It has been the poor cousin for a long, long time and because it is cheaper, But interestingly, even during this time, there has been a lot of instances where we've actually advised clients around water saving initiatives that they can actually look at now because there is that opportunity for that shorter investment. There's a number of tax breaks that the government have applied to um, certain assets in a building. Water efficiency um, fixtures and fittings is one of them. So by investing in those types of technologies and upgrades now, you actually get a shorter payback. Typically, that payback would be longer because water is cheap. So it's it's definitely something that I think there's a level of interest to investigate now, especially during a pandemic. Mm. Ruben, Davina? 
Well, look, I think one of the things is many climate crises, often the break point is when there's not water. So we've seen this over the summer where there isn't water in a town. We've seen it internationally. And so I think the real focus on resilience is going to bring water back into the forefront because if you look at straight financial returns, eco-efficiency, as Emma's indicated, there haven't been the first financial opportunities to be taken. But when we look at broader resilience, long-term government studies show that you get a $7 return for every dollar you spend in resilience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, or as my nanny used to say, you know, a stitch in time, measure twice, cut once. Whichever way you look at it, thinking up front, making a plan makes a phenomenal difference. And I think actually using climate risk and its impacts to draw water in as one of those key megatrends that we see that impact how these situations play out. And I actually think having that other mega trend, really that resilience trend push, as we think, to really bring water into the forefront. Yeah, great. Ruben, are you seeing investors focusing more and more on water or is it just not as important? I wouldn't say less important. It's certainly um, within a sort of maturity matrix, it's certainly part of one of the risks that they look at, which is also why we include it in the risk assessment. That's a large part of the grasp assessment. I think both Emma and Davina already said it, it, it's probably very much linked to, let's say, the financial business case. Again, looking at risks and, and opportunity and return. We've seen across the globe, actually, countries where energy is still subsidized or just very cheap, there's very little incentive to take action unless there's a very clear business case. And in my years having this in Asia for seven years, talking about sustainability in general, the most asked questions I received after I explained, you know, why sustainability is good was, oh, that's great. I want to be green, but what's in it for me? Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very logical question to ask because if you're an investment manager, indeed, one of your purposes is to create shareholder value. So I think showing the business case, you know, what you just mentioned, every single dollar gives return of uh, a seven multiple. I think that's crucial to understand for commercial property owners that, you know, investing in resilience, it's not just, let's say, capex and that's it. Actually, it enhances the value of your assets and your business model. So if we can make the business case more clear, more aware, I think that's where you will see the movement. Sometimes you need a stick, sometimes you need a carrot. I think for water, we need a larger carrot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, We've got another question here that's an interesting one that's coming up quite a bit around agile working. So the question around sustainability and that 360 agile working, the hot desking that we all have experienced over the last, I'd say, 15 years probably, of course, the original uh, focus for that, there were many benefits and one was sustainability. So what do you think will be the impacts of us retreating from that agile working environment, Davina? Well, I think it's, again, looking at what's the pivot and what's the rebound in this. So, you know, for the GBCA, we were an entirely agile organisation. In our return to work plan, we are allocating desks that are distanced for individuals who are coming back, which is unsurprising. But I think when we look in the recovery phase, we have to look at what is it that's going to bring people back to the office? You know, so the idea that if you're doing task-based work that you need to be in an office that has been fundamentally broken by the pandemic. And a lot of people are very comfortable, all the surveys are showing, working one to two days a week at home. So I think we've got to look at what people are going to come back into the office for. And it's going to be the events, the engagement, the brainstorming. You can't read a virtual room in quite the same way. Importantly, you can't disagree in large groups well 
then regain consensus or as we brainstorm and drive strategy together. So I think one of the things that we have to do is not just look at the binary, what are we going to lose and gain, but, you know, actually look at how to reimagine what that future state is. It's kind of like what we've been doing in retail in the last five years where we talk about experiential retail. People can shop online, so you've got to create an experience for them to come. That's going to be the new normal for the office place as we start to rebound out of this. Yeah. Emma, anything? Yeah, I think um, and maybe to, to build on the conversation around sustainable digitalization. I think this mm-hmm. is a perfect example of that unintended consequence, I guess, of us using technology to connect as opposed to that in-person and face-to-face time, which is absolutely what I think the office place is best used for in a number of cases. Again, yeah, you can't read the room in the same way as you can when you're on Zoom. While absolutely it has some really great benefits being online and, and doing virtual meetings, we can connect really, really well to our teams and really well globally, much easier than we ever had before without having to travel and that lost productivity time. But the benefits that you get from actually connection and that social connection with people is absolutely a benefit, I think, of getting into that office, which I think is, you know, one of the unintended consequences, I guess, from that sort of sustainable digitalization piece, to use your terms, Ruben. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think in the end, we're all social beings, right? So even though there's a chair between us, uh, social <laughs> distancing, it's still good to be in one room. And I think if anything the pandemic has sort of removed the stigma on working from home because we've been announcing a breakthrough of the industry for at least a decade. And now we've shown even, let's say, the most pessimistic or reluctant manager organization that is possible. You know, <laughs> the corporate world didn't sort of punch off the, of the riff. But yeah, I think it's about, you know, how do we ensure proper health, well-being, and, and just in the office, but also indeed, you know, in, in, in the places where we shop, uh, throughout supply chains and so on. And again, there, I think there, there are some great initiatives being launched currently, but my expectation is that we will indeed slowly move back if say, everything goes well, co- uh, yes. wise, move yes. back to the offices. And uh, indeed, probably as Emma said, the office might be used more as a, as a meeting place and actually a working place. Yeah, um, yeah, it will not lose its uh, functionality. Never yeah, it's fascinating. I have been uh, delighted to see that in the early days of the pandemic, when everyone was on Zoom, that people didn't realise just how quickly you could pick up on an eye roll. And I think people are used to that now. We've been we're able to manage our uh, facial expressions a little bit better on camera, which is great. I have one final question, and it's for you, Davina. It's come online as well um, from Dale, and a great question. Um, So regarding new commercial and industrial construction projects, do you see it as being critical that we put a bigger focus on control design rather than grouping it under the mechanical services package of the project? We find far too many cut and paste specifications on new projects, which results in buildings running at only a fraction of what is possible and in extreme cases needing to completely change the control strategy to achieve energy targets. I know that that is a topic that is near and dear to your heart, Davina. A a long-term passion of mine. How do we take the vision at the start of a project, actually deliver it and then live it every day? And you're right, the DNC models with the sub-subcontracting of packages has sometimes led to, you know, cost-cutting processes that deliver anything but value. The reason why I think we need to demystify um, net zero buildings, highly efficient buildings run by renewables, is I think it actually gives us the time and space to bring back effort, focus and value to where it's needed most. 
And that's often in, you know, unique, special, bespoke thinking about how a building's going to work. And I think, you know, the example that Emma gave in COVID time, the fact that these buildings aren't actually necessarily designed to stage down, the fact that in the bushfire crisis there was a base assumption in controls, packages, that outside air was always better than inside air. So if you've got a little bit of bushfire smoke, sometimes it would open your building up and suck in all that air because there wasn't the flexibility in the design. So I think actually by simplifying terms and bringing group strategy closer to building strategy, in my view, it makes space for the, you know, it's far sexier to have a building that's zero than uses energy efficiency, which is less. And my hope is by selling these sexy zero buildings, it creates the space to focus on what have been the fundamentals for 30 years but haven't been interesting enough to come to the board table, which is how do we do less better and how do we really optimise that? But I think it's the role of all of us professionals to say there's certain things that we've actually joined the dots on, but there's still a piece of complexity to work through that has really huge value to the long-term owner of an asset and how do we get really excited about watching the procurement in particular of mechanical specifications Mm -hmm. so they deliver long-term values in portfolio? My favourite question of the day. Great. Thank you, Davina. I love that you're bringing sexy back to sustainability. (laughs) Of course. Um, It's been a really great discussion. We're one minute from finishing. So thank you so much to my panellists. It was a really interesting conversation and I've learned a lot. I'm sure that people who've joined us have as well. We've talked a lot about the value of sustainability and how important it is going forward after COVID and during COVID. I think also that we've really learned during this process and the pandemic that what's important to us now and going into the future is what was probably most important to us before the pandemic. It's risen to the fore And I think our culture and our need for a more sustainable future is more important than ever because we want it to be better. So thank you all for joining us. It's been a great conversation and have a lovely day. If you like the show and want to check out more, visit cbre.com.au forward slash Talking Property or subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Talking Property with CBRE. Until next time.